0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please have a seat. So about five years ago, there was a book published here in the States called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. It's written by a Japanese organization expert named Marie Kondo. And this book was a guide to ridding your house of unused items and clutter and keeping only the things that spark joy. And then earlier this year, Netflix launched a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. So it featured Marie Kondo going into different people's homes and helping them bring order to their domestic chaos by ruthlessly and systematically cleaning out and organizing their homes keeping only things that sparked joy, and arranging them and storing them in very efficient and standardized ways. Marie Kondo, you see in this show, she is a lovely woman. She is slight in stature, she is meek and humble in personality, and she offers this promise of an organized and efficient and peaceful domestic life, and I found it impossible to watch her show and not long for the kind of household organization that she promotes. But while I was watching her show on Netflix about the life-changing magic of tidying up, I looked around my living room. I saw no fewer than four pairs of shoes on the floor. There were two loads of clean laundry in the chair waiting to be folded. A normal response would have been to pause the show Spend 15 minutes actually tidying up. Instead, I clicked watch next episode (laughs) and spent the next 30 minutes watching someone advise other people on cleaning up their homes. I wanted a tidied up house, but I wasn't actually willing to expend the effort it would take to get one. And I suspect I'm not alone. Whether it is with the state of our homes or the state of the world, most of us long for things to be different, but so often there's a disconnect between what we want and what we're willing to do to get it. We may want lower cholesterol or blood pressure, but we'd rather keep eating our bacon and eggs than make changes to our food and our activity patterns. We may want to combat climate change, but we'd rather drive than take the bus because the bus is slow and inconvenient. We may want a nation that embodies the best ideals of welcome and civility, but we'd rather keep living in our echo chambers than do the hard work of actually trying to understand people who are different from us. Our problem is that so often there is something we want, something we long for, but that thing that we long for rests on, is is made possible by something underneath it, and that thing underneath it isn't quite as appealing, quite as much fun, but unless that underlying thing is actually established, we won't get the thing we're really longing for. At best, we'll get just an approximation, a facsimile of it. Our passage from Isaiah this morning offers us a beautiful, famous depiction of something we all long for, which is a world at peace. It's a vision of wolves lying down with lambs, of calves and lions napping together, of ferocious carnivores happily munching on grass, Of children playing with snakes. Of all the creatures, God says in this vision, they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. In fact, the vision from this passage that the passage depicts has come to be known as the peaceable kingdom, and there are paintings of it throughout art. Who doesn't long for a peaceable kingdom? But what this passage makes clear, and actually what the whole book of Isaiah makes clear, is that there's something that lies underneath that peace that we long for. And that something is justice. Unless there is justice, there won't be peace. That's what we see in the first part of the reading in verses 1 through 5. What Isaiah is doing here is describing the person under whose reign Israel will have the kind of peace that we read about in verses 6 through 9. Isaiah uses the metaphor of a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse. Jesse, you'll remember, was King David's father. So a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse is a metaphor for a new David, a new king. And Isaiah goes on to describe what this king will be like. He says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And because of that, he'll have wisdom, he'll have strength, he'll delight in the fear of the Lord which means that he will love God, love to worship God, will have a heart that's inclined toward the things of God. And because this is the king's character, this is the kind of person he is, then he will rule in ways that reflect that. So Isaiah tells it that tells us That this king won't judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear. In other words, he won't be deceived by appearances or persuaded by flattery. Instead, this king will judge with righteousness. He will rule based on truth, and his judgments will be for the good of the poor, for the meek of the earth. This king, Isaiah is saying, will end exploitation and oppression. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In other words, this king will establish justice. And establishing justice requires the destruction of all of the sources and expressions of injustice. And that might be the part that we don't think about quite as much or quite as readily. Because often we don't really like to think about God destroying things. We would rather think about God creating things. But in order for God to create peace, he must create justice. And in order to create justice, God must destroy every expression of injustice which is why this passage begins with the image of a stump. The sign of a tree that has been cut down, cut off, and destroyed. Because our passage today, the part of Isaiah that we read, it really starts in the middle of the action. There's been a lot more that's been going on in the couple of chapters ahead, or before. So if you were to read back in chapters 9 and 10... You would find this imagery of God cutting down a whole lot of trees, forests full of them. And these chapters are full of images of war and of death. First, in chapter 9 and in the beginning of chapter 10, we see that God is waging war on Israel because of its unfaithfulness, because of the injustice that runs rampant in the kingdom. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, Isaiah says, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that their widows may be their spoil and that they may make fatherless their prey. Isaiah is saying, my people, the people of Israel, they have just pursued injustice after injustice, to the most vulnerable and oppressed. And what God is going to do is to destroy this injustice. And what he does is he uses the kingdom of Assyria to come and conquer Israel. But Assyria is actually full of its own injustice. Isaiah describes it as being proud and boastful and arrogant And so, chapter 10 of Isaiah describes how God will in turn destroy Assyria. And the last few verses of chapter 10 depict this with really vivid imagery. It says, See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs, the trees, with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is why chapter 11 begins with a stump. Because God has cut down the tree of Israel. The whole forest of trees. A whole forest of nations that have been destroyed by God because they made unjust laws and issued oppressive decrees. They deprived the poor of their rights, and they withheld justice from the oppressed. Even God's chosen people do not escape the destruction. These are hard images, hard ideas for us to wrestle with. In this book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus by Fleming Rutledge, who is a priest and a theologian, she says that Advent, with its scripture readings that are full of judgment, she says it's not for the faint of heart. And writing about our Isaiah passage, Rutledge says this, To bring about his kingdom, where in the famous image the lion will lie down with the lamb, God must obliterate everything that stands against that peace. His anointed one will do battle against his enemies, and unlike so many wars today where a disproportionate amount of the suffering is borne by women, children, and the elderly, the defenseless of the earth will suddenly find themselves on the winning side. It is very easy to think of the language of new creation as benign and non-threatening. We tend to forget that in order to make a new creation, God has to drive out the powers that messed up his first creation. So God is destroying injustice. He is driving out the powers that messed up his creation, which sounds really good, unless we happen to like some of the things about that messed up first creation. Which, if we are being honest with ourselves, we will have to admit that we do because we're partly responsible for messing up that creation. We are all guilty of sin. We all hurt one another as we look out for ourselves first. We are all capable of establishing or supporting systems that benefit us at the expense of others, we all participate in injustice, and we resist efforts to overturn it. We see this pattern over and over throughout history. So consider the history of slavery in this country Slave owners whose lives and livelihoods were built on a system of oppression and injustice, they were not interested in having that system abolished. And their resistance to the destruction of slavery cost this country 620,000 human lives in the Civil War. Or think about the movement for women's suffrage. Believe it or not, men did not just happily grant women the right to vote the first time they asked. (laughs) Women had to fight and lobby and protest and resist for decades before the 19th Amendment was passed. Any time that power systems and structures are threatened, the powers that be resist. This is true in nations, it's true in families, I would even say it's true in churches. The truth is that when you love the old thing, when you have oriented your life around the old thing, then even its transformation can feel like destruction. So part of the call of Advent is for us to actually welcome God's destruction, to welcome the death of sin and of oppression and of injustice in our own hearts, in our lives, in the world around us, because if there is going to be the peace that we long for, there must first be justice. The good news of Advent is that God doesn't leave it up to us to create the justice and the peace that we long for. Because as we know all too well, we are not capable of creating real peace. Not in our own families, let alone between nations and peoples. Peace that is based on justice Peace that honors and reflects the image of God in all people, that's something that only God can create. An Advent is a season when we wait for that creation with hope and expectation. It's a season where we are looking for God to break in and to bring new creation. He began that work in a manger in Bethlehem. And he will complete it when Christ comes again in glory. Again, Fleming Rutledge puts it well when she says this. A power from outside is coming. A power that is able to make a new creation out of people like us. Stones like us people who have no capacity of ourselves to save ourselves. The power that is coming is not our power, not the power of our deeds or our inner strength or our spiritual discipline or our faith or even our repentance. It's God's power that gives good deeds and inner strength and spiritual discipline and faith and repentance. We are able to repent and bear fruit because he is coming. That power that God gives us is the power of Christ, and Christ is coming. And when Christ comes, when there is the embodiment of God's justice, he will bring peace, this peace that we long for. Christ is coming. And so we can have hope that there will be a day when children can go to school without fear of being shot. There will be a day when families can gather freely without walls separating them, whether those walls are at a border or in our hearts. There will be a day when there will be no more stealing because no one is in want And everyone has enough, enough food, enough clothing, enough shelter, dignity, purpose. There will be a day when our brothers and sisters of color don't have to worry about being shot for normal activities like walking down a street or hanging out in grandma's backyard or playing video games in their apartments. There will be a day when we will not hurt one another when the sanctity of human life is honored and celebrated, when all are welcomed to the table, when the dignity and the image of God in each of us will shine like the sun. That's the kingdom that God is creating. Not just in the world around us, but within us. God works transforming us from the inside out. God comes to us in the midst of our mess because there is no mess that can keep God out. God doesn't wait for us to get it right, to tidy ourselves, to tidy up our hearts, to change ourselves, to take the first step. God takes the first step into our world, into our hearts to bring peace to bring the peaceable kingdom and make it flesh. There are times when that will be uncomfortable. It will even be painful because God will destroy the things in our lives that are not life-giving. God will disarm our hearts and invite us to live in a new way. We may have to give up things that are precious to us, We may have to give up power that doesn't rightfully belong to us. We may have to give up privilege that robs us of our own humanity as it disregards the humanity of others. Advent is a season, but Advent is also an act of faith, as we long and wait and trust That the new kingdom that God is building is infinitely better than the stump of our failed attempts. Christ is coming. He will reign with righteousness and with peace. He will build a world in which there is no more mourning or pain or sorrow. God will make a way out of no way. And one day, we will know justice and we will know peace. Thanks be to God.